This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the Indian Religions Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. More importantly, I have today a very special guest. Uh, we have with us uh, Dr. Wendy Doniger, who is a uh, emeritus professor um, in religion at the University of Chicago and a, an influential and prolific scholar in the area of Sanskrit narrative or Indian myth. Wendy, a hearty welcome to the podcast. Very happy to be here. We are looking at... Um, uh, it's a, it, it, her title is emeritus professor, but clearly she hasn't retired. <laughs> <she's>, <laughs> I'm retired from writing. I've just retired from teaching. That's quite different. <laughs> there you go. So, so you're more productive, <laughs> even Whatever. more productive now. <laughs> because with the book we're talking about today is called Winged Stallions and Wicked Mares. The notes, uh, the, 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 the info will be in the podcast notes. And it's just out this year. It's about horses um, in Indian mythology and history. Um, could you tell us a little bit about the genesis of this? And knowing a thing or two about your interest in horses, that might be a long story. But <laughs> nevertheless, how did this project arise? I'll give you this some chipta version of it, um, the, the short version of it. Um, it started off some years ago when I gave the uh, Radhakrishna lectures at All Souls in Oxford. <clears throat> um, and um, they were dedicated to Penelope Betjeman, who had taught me to ride horses. Um, there's a long story there, but that's, that's a short way of putting it. And she died on horseback in the Himalayas uh, the week before I gave those lectures. So I gave them, but it kind of took the wind out of my sails. And I kind of set them aside for a while until I was invited to give another set of lectures at the University of Virginia. Virginia is in the middle of horsey country in America. That's where all the hunts are. So I revised and updated the lectures and gave it then. And then again, I let go of it um, until quite recently when I went back to Virginia for another reason. I met with the new director of the press and he said, you remember those old horse lectures? So I thought I really had the book right there. But when I started working on it, I realized that the lectures had been individual topics about horses. But for a real book, I had to fill in a lot of spaces. 
not so much in myth. I knew the stories quite well, but I really didn't know the history. Um, uh, what horses really were like in India. Uh, what were the problems about breeding horses in India? Uh, when they, had they first come to India and so forth? So I had to do a lot of new research, which was lots of fun, and found out a lot more about the actual history. And I put the history and the mythology together, and that was the book. And, um, uh, and it, it's all finished. So I learned a lot in the last couple of years, even though I thought I'd been studying about thinking and learning about, not so much studying, but thinking and learning about horses for 40 years. Still, those last two years before the book was finished were, was a period of very intense and really very happy learning. And so the, the acknowledgments uh, have hundreds of names on them, a lot of people dead for a long time, and then some very recent people. So it, it really shows the span of the book as um, um, how many people I thanked um, in so many different ways. So, so it was great so, fun putting the book together. Was there anything that particularly surprised you about what you learned about history of horses when you were researching this? Yes. The thing that surprised me and I think is the most interesting part of the book, really, is that horses, which are so important in Indian mythology, the Veda, the horse sacrifice, horses, 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 horses are not only not native to India, but do very badly in India. So that no one can really, well, not no one. In Rajasthan, you can breed horses quite well. But in most parts of India, where they had horses, they couldn't raise them there. They couldn't take care of them. They had to always bring them in from outside. They brought them in from the Persian Gulf. They brought them in from Arabia. When the British were there, they brought them in from Australia, from South Africa, from England. Um, because you can't keep raising horses in any of the soil, just doesn't have the stuff that they need. And the, the monsoon is bad for their hooves and the heat is bad for them. So even though horses were important, nobody had horses. Only kings with their cavalry could afford horses. So all those folk tales about horses, all those drawings of horses, um, people's huts as you drive through Rajasthan, um, all those little tiny statues of horses that you see all over Bengal and all those places were made by people who sometimes had never even seen a horse certainly had never ridden a horse and absolutely had never owned a horse. And it just was so interesting to me that the horse had so captured the imagination of the people of India when it was an elite um, animal and therefore it was a repressive animal. The horse, if you were a villager, the only horse you ever saw was when the tax collector rode on his horse into your village, took three quarters of your crop for the year and left you to starve. That's, that's when you saw horses. Or when the cavalry rode through town on the way to some battle. Um, that's what horses meant. And yet they admired them and they, they loved them. And they, it was just, it's, that's an interesting, that's what I learned. That was the real interesting thing I learned. Yeah, that's, that's super fascinating. It speaks to the extent to which the, um... The social imaginary, the imaginary, just it's its own thing. It's 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 uh, the 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 horse is so vibrant in the imaginary of India. Um, uh, many, I mean, Devi Mahatmya, you know, the the, the the king goes off into the forest on a horse. 
And a long description of how his hooves were and how his ears were and how his tails were and all that sort of thing. Um, and, 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 the, and the drawings and so forth. Yes, so it's wonderful that it, that it did that. Um, there's a kind of push, uh, uh, um, a new wave of enthusiasm when you have um, Arabian people and Arabian horses entering India long before the time of the prophet, not necessarily Muslims at all, but Arabians, and then also Muslims later on, of course, but um, a different kind of horse comes in and a different kind of mythology comes into the stories change because of the input of um, Arab attitudes toward horses, which are quite different from Indo-European attitudes toward horses. So that also is interesting historically. So that's far too tantalizing to not pursue. Can you say a bit about the difference? Well, the Vedic view of horses, I mean, that's my title of the book, Winged Horses and Wicked Mares. It's all about stallions and virility and all that fertility and male hostility stuff and all that. Um, and then the story about the mare is the story of Saranyu, who abandoned her children and so forth. So the, the great Vedic story of the stallion is the horse that, that wins in battles and wins in horse races. It's all male. And the big Vedic story of the mare is the story of the bad mother. Um, and so mares go on having a very bad reputation. There's the underwater horse that comes out at the end of doomsday and burns everything up. That's a mare. All these negative images, important in, uh, in negative images of mares. But the uh, Arabians liked mares. Um, the, uh, the prophet had mares and rode a mare. Barak was probably a mare, the famous horse of Muhammad. Um, and there are lots of stories about mares. So when you begin to get medieval Rajput um, epics about horsemen, there are magic mares, wonderful mares. Um, the hero rides a mare and so forth and so forth. So the mythology changes under the influence of a, of a different cultural attitude toward horses. And that's interesting also. That was a surprise to me. I didn't know that. That was very interesting. So part of what I do on this podcast is I ask purposely naive questions for a broader audience. So just before you think I'm a blithering idiot. Um, <laughs> you know the answer to the question you're going to ask. No, not necessarily. Right? <laughs> not, not necessarily. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Um, but when did horses enter India historically? Horses probably were in India from time immemorial. Um, there's evidence, archaeological evidence of bones and things of horses from a very early, early period. But horses in culture, horses that were uh, bridled and more particularly harnessed to chariots, come into India when the Indo-European people came into India, which is as you know, in your not naivete, a very uh, heavily vexed and troubled question as to whether the Indo-Europeans came into India or came from India. The only people who believe that the Indo-Europeans came from India are some Indians, and they're wrong. Everybody else believes that the Indo-Europeans came from probably the Caucasus or, or someplace in Central Europe. Um, but in any case, um, we know from the archaeological evidence as well as the art history evidence that there were no 
courses at the Indus Valley Civilization, which is older than the first historical appearance of Indo-Europeans in India. Indus Valley goes back to 2000 BC and before. And there are lots and lots of images in the Indus Valley, those little tiny, wonderful carved images with lots of animals, not a single horse. There are also no horse bones really there. Um, there are horse bones in other parts of India, South India and so forth, but they're not connected with any culture that we know of. The uh, culture of horses and bits and bridles and saddles and more particular harnessing to chariots comes in with the Rig Veda, which is, an in, which is composed in an Indo-European language and therefore was the document, oral, originally the oral document, of Indo-European people. So horses are in India in different ways. They're there physically, but we know nothing about them from some early archeological sites, but they're there culturally only in the Rig Veda from about 1500 BCE up in the Punjab. So how are horses uh, figured or represented in the epics? What do you say in that chapter? Wonderful stories about horses in the epics. Uh, the horses are connected with the ocean a lot in the epics. There are stories of Vishnu going down into the ocean and taking the form of a horse-headed person to bring up the Vedas. There are stories of Shiva involved in the creation of this underwater mare with fire in her mouth. She lives under the ocean and so forth. So there are a lot of oceanic images of horses. Um, they're also in the Mahabharata part of the great horse sacrifice, which uh, is the 14th book of the 18 books of the Mahabharata um, in which Yudhishthira finally, partly as penance for having killed about everybody in India in those battles, uh, performs a horse sacrifice. So there are a lot of horse sacrifice stories and stories about the creation of the ocean because a horse ran down into the ocean, escaped from the sacrificial grounds, and the king's sons dug down, 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 down to get the horse, and that became the ocean. The water flew in and so forth. So there are a lot of stories about horses in the ocean um, and horses that belong to kings who perform horse sacrifices. Vishnu has some mythology as a horse. Shiva has some mythology of a horse. You get only the very beginning in the, a brief reference in the Mahabharata, to the avatar of Vishnu as Kalkin, the rider on the white horse, which is really developed later on in the Puranas. But there's a verse or two that suggests that it was known to the Mahabharata, although they never really tell the story. And then you get the story later on. So, so they're there a lot, uh, more in the Mahabharata than in the Ramayana. In the Ramayana, again, there's a horse sacrifice in order to produce uh, the birth of Rama and his brothers. The, his father has a horse sacrificed to us. So there, there are those horses, but not a lot of horsey stories in the Ramayana, mostly, mostly in the Mahabharata. Now, with respect to this distinction we spoke of earlier in terms of the world within the text versus the world beyond the text or the, the horses in the imaginary versus um, on the ground, um, uh, where does the horse sacrifice fit into that? Is it a historical reality? Is it a narrative reality? That's a very good question. Um, it sure is a narrative reality. The question is how real was it? Um, it was unreal from the start in one very important sense. It was a lie. The story was that the king 
simply released the horse for a year and it wandered around freely. And wherever it went, um, that became the king's territory. And at the end of the year, when it had finished its wandering, it came back and was sacrificed. In reality, if you have a horse that's stabled, you feed it, you let it loose. It goes out for a couple of hours. It comes back for dinner. Um, uh, tame horses um, do not wander. Um, wild horses wander. They wander all the time because horses graze very inefficiently. They tear up the grass. They have, horses have very blunt teeth and they tear up the grass, whereas goats and even cows cut it off. So horses are always uprooting the grass. So wild horses wander all the time. And that idea of the horse as a wanderer is then incorporated in the mythology of the horse sacrifice, which is just let the horse wander. So the horse doesn't wander. It's a tame horse. It's no longer a wild horse. The horse has a very big army behind it. And the army drives the horse into whatever country the king wants to conquer. And uh, it gets to this new country and starts grazing and people start running out with knives and axes and things and says, get your damn horse off my, out of my grazing grounds. And all of a sudden, 10,000 armed men appear over the hill. And the guy says, whoops, sorry, please uh, let the horse graze as much as it likes. And would you like a little something to drink for yourselves and so forth. And so in that way, only a king who was pretty confident that he could enlarge his domain would, be, would perform a horse sacrifice. It was an aggressive thing to do. So that's the first lie, and it's a very big lie. It's a tremendous lie, really. After that, um, kings would only occasionally perform horse sacrifices because they were very expensive and very difficult and so forth. So the claim that someone had performed a horse sacrifice was also, I think, occasionally a false claim. In any case, it was a rare claim. Not, not a lot of people were able to even claim. There were some were performed in recent years, and then there were protests about the killing of the horse, and people said the horse wasn't really killed and so forth. So there are problems in recent horse sacrifices. But I think they were never as important in real life as they were in, in narrative. Um, they represented something. Um, but they were difficult to carry out and sometimes probably unwise to carry out. Uh, it was a real aggressive thing to do. And there were only some times when you thought you could get away with it. Fascinating. So um, after the epics, of course, the next chapter in your book talks about the Puranas. And uh, you certainly know a thing or two about the Puranas. Uh, <laughs> I had a hell of a time with that chapter. I had to cut so much out. I mean, it would have taken over the whole book as it is. I, 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 was, I was thinking, and you probably could write an entire book on the Puranas. <laughs> And it's actually too long. There's probably more stuff in the Puranas than anyone even really wanted to know about the Puranas. But the Puranas are wonderful because that's where um, you get a real development of the uh, mythology of the gods. I mean, Krishna in the Mahabharata is um, seldom a god. I mean, he's a god in the Bhagavad Gita, of course, but for most of the point, he's, he's not a god. And um, Rama in the Ramayana is mostly also not a god. So it's in the Puranas that the real mythology of Rama the God and Krishna the God develops. And so you really begin to get the avatars becoming more and the avatars of Vishnu becoming more and more involved with horses of various kinds. Um, so the Purana mythology of the submarine there, for instance, develops 
in enormously interesting ways, connected with goddesses and all sorts of, of new developments that are not present in the epics. There were lots and lots of great stories in the Quran, some of them very funny, occasionally yeah. dirty, but mostly not, mostly clean. Yeah. You can't say that there were lots of great stories in the Puranas without citing one or telling a little bit of one. Come now. <laughs> what's, what's the story in the Purana? Um, well, one of the stories about the, the origin of the mayor fire, right? So you have um, a sage who's born from a mayor in complicated ways. When he grows up, someone says to him, your mother was a mayor, which I think is the equivalent of the American statement, your mother wears army boots or something of that sort, or your, you know, um, Indian curses, insults that involve remarks about someone's sister, you know, your sister, that kind of, you get beat up quick if you, if you say some, certain things about a man's sister too. So someone says your mom was a mayor. And because of that, a great fire comes out of his head in the form of a mayor. And it threatens to burn the entire world up. And the people run to whatever God this story is being told about. There are a lot of different versions of it. And he says, you have to find a chaste maiden who will carry the mayor to the ocean and make it safe. So you have this idea of female promiscuity and the curse, your mom was a mayor. And then you have the counteracting cool effect of um, sometimes it's Sarasvati, sometimes it's somebody else. So this chaste maiden is carrying the fiery mare to the sea and a mountain tries to rape her. And she says, well, wait a minute, I just have to do my ablutions. And she says a magic, a magic formula and, and kills the potential rapist. So again, chastity, female chastity. Finally, she gets to the ocean and the mare goes down into the ocean. And where the mare is in the ocean, she's kept quiet because the waters of the ocean keep quenching her flames. They're always there, but they're, they're, it's like a nuclear reaction. There are, there are cooling coolants around it that keep it from exploding. At the same time, the ocean might have flooded the whole world, but goodness, thank goodness, we have the mayor's fire, which keeps um, melting and, and evaporating, really, the waters of the ocean. So you have this hair trigger balance. It's a wonderful image of how doomsday is waiting for us all the time. The ocean wants to flood us, the fire wants to burn us. Each of them is just barely keeping one another in check until the time comes at the end of the Kali Yuga, when it is time for doomsday. And then Brahma comes down and whistles to the mayor and the mayor gallops up out of the ocean and immediately burns everything up. And the ocean now unchecked leaves its banks, uh, its shores, and floods the whole world. And then you get the cosmic ocean and Vishnu sleeping on the serpent Ananta. And you get into that whole other mythology until it's time to make the world again. And that's one of the great Quranic myths. Lots of versions of it told in different places. Vadavagni is the name of it, the mare fire. Vadavagni is also the name for a volcano in many Northern Indian languages derived from Sanskrit. So that's also where the fire comes out. It comes out in places on earth also in volcanic eruptions. And then it comes out in this, which is a sort of a minor prelude 
suggesting what will happen at doomsday when the when the main when the main mayor comes out yeah, well this this lovely book containing much narrative and and, and analysis and, and history who's it for who might most benefit from this book or enjoy this book well it's being published by the university of virginia and one of the reasons they took it on is they think that they could sell it to horsey people so when I made the list of, you know, journals to send it to besides the New York Review of Books and everything, I said horse and hound and things like that. As far as I know, there's been no publicity for it and no one in America even knows the book exists except the people I've given it to. But in India, it was published by my great Indian publisher, Ravi Singh, um, who has this wonderful a company called Speaking Tiger, which eventually published my book, The Hindus, when I had a little disagreement with Penguin about it. Um, and Ravi Singh has been doing fabulous publicity. I've had lots of interviews in India. It was reviewed in all the best Indian papers, very well reviewed. Um, so people in India are finding it an interesting book. Just people who are interested in the history of India and Indian thought and Indian literature and Indian narrative. Um, so it's done really very well in India and um, it's reached not horsey people, because by definition, there are hardly any horsey people in India, right? Because you don't have that's a, that's, a that's a technical term, right? Horsey people. Oh, horsey people is, is a term of art. Horsey people are people who have and ride and love horses. That's Those are horsey people. So Virginia is full of horsey people. Parts of England are full of horsey people and so forth. Kentucky is full of horsey people um, and so forth. Um, in Pakistan, Lahore is full of a lot of horsey people. That's a great horse racing town and so forth. So there aren't that many horsey people in India. There is the Bombay race course and the Pune stables and, and, and uh, studs. And I visited the Pune studs when I was working on the book. But there are people who are interested in Indian literature. And I think ultimately those are going to be the people who are going to be interested in the book. People interested in the way that ideas develop in stories, the history of narratives in India. And that seems to be what people are interested in it who are reading it in India. Um, there's been some interest in the always vexed questions of Hindus and Muslims and the Arab influence and the still active worship of horses by Muslims in India, as well as in Pakistan, uh, the festival of Muharram and so forth. Uh, um, the horse of Karbala and so forth. So there's some political aspects to the book, but that's not us mainly about people interested in Indian religion and in Indian literature seem to like the book rather than horsey people. My guess was wrong. I don't think, oh, we'll see. It's, it's early days. Well, we'll uh, see. And, and yeah. um, there's a good chance if, 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 if history is to be trusted that you might get a bit more interest post this podcast I both among listen all i do is talking to a big black box in toronto to wonderful interesting people and i don't know by some magic the rest happens so that's great i have um, some fans some people buy my books but that's not enough to to really sell it it has to be people who are interested in what the book is about and and i think that i i kind of usually lose interest in a book after i've after I've written it. The fun is the writing it. I also, I'm a publisher's daughter. I also love making the book. I like choosing the pictures and, and doing the footnotes and so forth. But by that time I'm writing another book and, and once it's done, 
my main interest is in the next book and not in whether or not this book has been well-reviewed or widely sold even. It's, it's over as far as I'm concerned. Well, I was going to say, it's very much related to the pace. For most people, books are like, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs for their, <laughs> their events. For you, they're like meals, you know, I'm done with this, we're moving on. So for those listening who may not be uh, uh, specialists or, or, or aware, how many books have you written? Depends on how you count a book. So there's two different kinds of books. There's books like this, where you have an idea and you do the research and you write the book. And there's about 20 of those. And then there's another kind of book where you edit a book of essays, when you do a translation of something of that sort. And there's about another 20 of those. So there's about 45 books, but only half of them are what I really think of as, as my books. The others are useful. I did translations of Rig Veda and the Laws of Manu and Kama Sutra. So that's one thing where it's really other people have the great ideas and I'm just the midwife of it. Also, the, where I edited books, my you know, lots of chapters, but the ones where the idea is my own, I think there's 20, 21, 22 of those. And, and this may be the last one of those. We'll see. I'm 80. I don't know how long I'm going to go on doing this. Anyway. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, uh, before we move on to the next topic, was there anything else about the horse book that you wanted to talk about? Not particularly. You asked a lot of good questions. Um, Listen, dumb questions sometimes get very smart answers, <laughs> so it's, it's good. Um, <laughs> the, um, speaking of uh, your prolific <laughs> rate of production and the various things that you do, um, introduce for the listeners uh, this project started by Van Butenen and, 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 and the piece of it that's in your hands. I mean, this is, this is monumental. I mean, so yeah. the listeners may have heard about it in different places, but introduce that for us because you are very heavily involved in that project. So the project is the translation of the critically edited edition, the critical edition of the Mahabharata, which was produced in Pune in the 50s, 1950s, the translation of that, that version, which is not the only version, but is in some ways the best version of the Mahabharata, the translation of that into English. And that project was taken on by the University of Chicago Press with the help of a generous sponsor who gave the money for it. And it was begun by um, Hans van Boitenen, who was then professor of Sanskrit in Chicago. And he produced several very good volumes he translated the first four books of the Mahabharata, five, first five books of the Mahabharata, um, and then he died. He died young. He, well, anyway, I won't say how he died. He died. <laughs> he died. And the University of Chicago Press then farmed the project out to other people in various ways, a new editor, um, um, new authors, and so forth. And none of them came through. Finally, after 30 years, um, uh, one volume was produced, volume 12. And in between, there was nothing. So meanwhile, the Clay Sanskrit series in England at Oxford started producing translations of individual books, and several of them have been produced. And then Clay died. And that wasn't done. Um, meanwhile, in the 19th century, another version of the Mahabharata, not the critical edition, but the Bengal edition, was translated by, um, was published by P.C. Roy, 
um, translated by somebody else, actually. And we do have that edition of, a, of an English edition. It's simply very hard to read. It's not very well written. And there are some mistakes in it. More recently, um, Bibek Debroy produced another English translation, which is basically based on the PC Roy translation, and it has a lot of mistakes in it. So those aren't really reliable. Um, there's a one volume translation, which is accurate of the critical edition um, by John Smith, but he only translates the parts of the story that deal with the heroes in the battle, maybe one hundredth of the Mahabharata. So um, I decided that I wanted to translate the last four books of the Mahabharata because um, no one pays much attention to them. People sort of run out of steam before they get there, I think. And they're wonderful. And they're about what happens after the war. And so they're really very relevant, I felt, to the problems we face today in Rwanda and in Uganda and now in Afghanistan, all over the world. We faced it in a way after World War II, what to do, um, how to re-educate the Germans who were Nazis and so forth. So the problem of um, making a world with your neighbors who killed your sons and you killed their sons, the problem of peace and reconciliation, um, is the problem that's faced in the last books of the Mahabharata, where most of the heroes want to commit suicide, and many do. They simply cannot go on with their lives, and the ones who do survive have to find their way through hell and heaven in a world that they do not understand. Um, so it's a really interesting part of the text that no one has ever gotten to in a way. So I decided to translate them and to annotate them and to try to make them more understandable and reader friendly than they have been. And so I've done that. And Ravi Singh is now editing that and is going to bring it out in January or February anyway, sometimes fairly, sometimes fairly soon. Um, so that's, that was the next project. That's what I was doing while the horse book was in press. That's fantastic. I mean, the, the, <laughs> the Marabarta is just an um, enthralling narrative, and it, it's, it's such an important project. Who knows when the entire critical edition will be translated, but it's great to at least get the ending. No one person could translate it. It's simply too big, so we all do little pieces. So this is an, yet another piece of the Mahabharata, but I think it's an important piece, and it's been wrongly neglected. You know, throughout Indian history, People have retold parts of the Mahabharata in poems and in dramas. Very little attention by Indians themselves has been paid to the last books of the Mahabharata, and very little attention by scholars in Europe has been paid. It's always about the other parts of the Mahabharata. So, so there's some really wonderful things in it that I think were really worth looking at and retranslating and trying to figure out what they mean. They're not always easy to understand. So I had a great time doing that. So that's that'll come out in a while. Yeah, I, I very much look forward to to reading um, the translations. One of my great interests is frame narratives and the way they sort of oh wow guide interpretation and you know uh, 
for example, the frame of the Devi Mahatmya, for example, or the various frames in the Mahabharata stories. But in paying really close attention to this finale of the epic and seeing, does it obscure or does it shed light on the Adi Parvan? Like what, you know, what's happening there? That might be an interesting exercise. But um, so in addition to the Mahabharata project that's now finished, and finished. the horse book is now finished. That's right. You're working on anything else? Not that you're not that you need to be. <laughs> There's another project that's almost finished. There's another project that's almost finished, and then do, there's do one you on... um do you sleep? <laughs> Actually, I don't. I don't sleep well. I don't sleep long. Um, now that I'm right. old, I spend time in bed because I need to rest my body. My body is not working very well these days. Um, so I go to bed, but I don't go to sleep much. Wow, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm I'm a bear for eight hours. <laughs> oh, if I get five, that's a good night. Yeah. Oh no, 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 no. I never sleep. But as I said, I don't simply do. I don't trans. I don't write books all day long. Um, I do other things, but but um, but I don't sleep a lot. So the so other what project, was this the project? Yeah. So the other project that's almost. Uh, that's done, that's being edited, that Ravi Singh is now editing in, in India, is, it's a funny project. When I was 22, I went to India for a year. I went to Calcutta and to Shanti Niketan. And during that year, I wrote letters. This first time I've been away from home and I was very homesick. And I wrote letters home to my parents, which also included my field notes. I, I had a little Olivetti portable typewriter with me and I typed out these pages upon pages of descriptions of monsoons and of uh, performances I'd seen and meeting with famous people and all sorts of things. My opinion of various forms of architecture and all like that. And um, I never thought about that again. And then about three years ago, when I was retiring from the University of Chicago, retiring from teaching, not from writing, but I retired from teaching and so I closed up my big office. I'd had this wonderful office for 30 years. And I found a box behind a cabinet and it had little typewritten letters. And I picked one up and it said, Calcutta, December 10th, 1963, dear mommy and daddy. And it was a set, my mother had kept the my letters. And when my mother died in 1991, I had these boxes and boxes of stuff from my mother's house that I just kept and never looked at. And it was only when I was moving out. So I suddenly, for the first time, saw these letters I'd written, uh, lots of them. Um, so when I looked at them, it was a mixed bag. Some of it was really interesting. Um, the, the people I met, the kindness of casual encounters in trains and buses, my own opinion, of the architecture and the climate, and indeed my encounter with stories, which I was interested in, many of which turned out to be books later on, the seeds of the things about Shiva, about horses, about women, all those themes. I was already hearing those stories and reading those stories. And then mixed in with that was just this bullshit from a very young girl, a spoiled brat, I, um, a pampered young girl coming down to the slums of Calcutta, which was still full of refugees from Pakistan. This is 1963. They'd come down in 48 and 49. They were still all sleeping on the streets of Calcutta. So I'd never even seen poverty in America. I'd never seen homeless people in New York. 
So I was kind of overwhelmed. Um, it was a schizophrenic experience on the one hand, thrilled by the culture and by the kindness of the people and the beauty of the land and appalled by the poverty and the apparent inability of India to deal with the poverty in any useful way and so forth. So those letters, and then, so in addition, a lot of the letters were just stupid stuff to my parents. Please send me my red socks. I just bought you this picture I'm sending home. Uh, send me money. I'm sending you this and so forth. So there was a lot of bullshit, just boring stuff. So they had to be edited. You couldn't just publish them the way they were. So I edited them as well as I could. And then I, I didn't take out all the embarrassing, naive stuff, because it's interesting. I just took out some of the embarrassing, naive stuff, and I'm leaving it to Ravi Singh to decide how much more should be taken out before we can let people read these letters. Um, it's also full of private jokes to my parents, which I explained in footnotes, and references to Sanskrit texts, which I also, so I added notes to the letters, I annotated them. So it's almost ready to go, and when Ravi decides what else has to be taken out or what notes needed need to be added. Um, I wrote a preface. It'll be published. And so that's the next, we, have, we don't even have a title. We're calling it Letters from India, but we, we need a better title than that. So, so it's almost done. It's in the editing and publishing stage. Most that's of it was 60 years ago. It really is fascinating. It's, it's, it, 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 they probably would read as the notes of a budding, um, a budding ethnographer yeah. uh, and yet, and that you were called to text. Clearly that's your, your calling. And so it's, yeah. it's interesting yeah. that you took such detailed notes about what you experienced and how you experienced. I find that fascinating. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking of the projects you have on, um, uh, Thank you very much. You have actually agreed to write an introduction to a volume that we're working on. We'll cover it on the podcast at some point. So that should be lots of fun. It was sort of in many ways trying to um, live up to something you did 30 years ago, Piranha Perennis, <laughs> which is still of great inspiration to Piranha scholars. Yeah. So thank you very much for being part of that. That's what's wonderful about scholarship is that it's not a matter of whether you get on the bestseller list or good reviews. When you have a book out there, someone finds it useful and they use it for their stuff. That's what it's really about. Someone says, I read your book and it made me interested in studying this and I changed my field or I used something in one of your chapters and it helped me solve a problem in one of my, that's what, that's what the, the, the fellowship of the academy is really about. It's about helping your students and helping your fellow scholars in a conversation of which you're only a small part. Even if the book is a, is a failure, someone finds something in it that helps them to write a much better book than you wrote. And that's, that's good. That's the way that goes on. So um, I was really pleased that, you, that you're still interested in the piranhas and, and that I was able, I'm, I'm, it's really nice. I found out actually in the course of writing this brief um, a forward I'm writing, that Dan Ingalls, my old Sanskritist, who was appalled when I started studying the Puranas because they're such, you know, low-class literature. Slumming was, it. Was, was slumming, exactly. He was called it the dregs. He referred to it as the dregs of Sanskrit literature. I met uh, Charlie Hallisey, who was his student in later years, much younger than I am, who said Dan Ingalls was working on a translation of the Shiva Purana 
in those in those years. And I can't find out where it is or what became of it. But Charlie, who's an absolutely reliable witness, he used to read them bits. And when the class was over, he'd read them bits of his translation of the Shifu Purana. Who could have imagined that Ingalls would ever actually work on the Puranas after the scorn he heaped on my head for going into them? So life is full of surprises. It is indeed. He was probably just overtaken by some latent Shiva Bhakti from, <laughs> from somewhere. Who knows? Um, um, it's obviously, uh, it'll be impossible in the scope of this podcast to touch on, you know, the 30,000 foot view of your work and, 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 and all that you've, you've done in the field. Uh, but I can't help but sort of get a bit of that in. What, um, oh, there's so many questions to ask. How, uh, is there something you wish you knew, you know, decades ago that you now know either wh- how whatever whether that whether that's about academic enterprise or about the piranhas himself or um another way to ask this question might be you know what are some core takeaways that have dawned on you having done this for so long it's a good question i think my one of my main regrets i i was an old-fashioned orientalist um, that is to say, I knew Latin and Greek, and Sanskrit was the third language of that. That's how I got to Sanskrit. I loved Latin. My Latin teacher said you'd love Greek, and then my Greek teacher said you'd love Sanskrit. So those are the languages I knew. I, I lived in Bengal for a year, and I learned Bengali, but not Bangla, as we call it now, but I never really used it. I really never got into the contemporary and vernacular languages of India. I stayed in ancient India. Um, I was dependent on translations for the folklore of India. And, you know, as, you know, I do translations, other people, the Ramanujan did translations, Stuart Blackburn, I used them. So if I had to do it all over again, I would learn an Indian language. In fact, I would learn a South Indian language, a non-Indo-European Indian language. I think there would be a richness to my work. The example I have is my my most my first and most brilliant student, David Shulman, who did precisely that. He was a great Sanskritist, but he then went into Tamil and Telugu, and I think there's a a human richness to his work, which mine doesn't have. Um, it also made it possible for him to spend a lot of time in India um, and to be more in touch with what was really going on there. That I couldn't do. I was married. I was married to a man who wouldn't let me go to India and didn't want to go himself. So my life took that turn. I was never going to be an anthropologist, but I might at least have learned more of the the non-Indo-European languages. I think it would have been good for my understanding of language and for my understanding of the culture of India. So when I do a comparative work and I talk about Telugu and Tamil variants, I quote David Shulman, I quote other people. I'm reliant on translations for the other folklores of India and it's okay. I did it. There were good translations. I managed. I did. I do know about Tamil and Telugu stories and there are a lot of them in the uh, horse book. There are also a lot of Arabic stories. I don't read Arabic. So I mean, that's that's about the fellowship of scholarship. Other people did translations too. If I want them to read mine, I read theirs, you know? So I, I was able to cover those subjects and include them in my later works. But there's something about getting your hands into the soil. There's something about really 
understanding and thinking in especially non-Indo-European way. I did learn Tamil for a while at Berkeley, and I, I, I do know how Tamil functions, but I didn't learn it well enough to really read texts in it the way I can read texts in Sanskrit. Um, so I think if I had done more of that, um, that would have been an interesting path I never went down. So that's my main regret. Otherwise, I was very lucky. I, I was able to do almost everything I wanted to do. I was indulged. I was given the time to write. University of Chicago is a research institute. You do very little teaching. And when you do teach, you can teach whatever you want. I was taught my books. It was great. I'm doing a book on horses. I gave a course on horses in India. My students brought me texts I didn't know about. A lot of them Indian students. My grandma used to tell me a story in Marathi about horses and things like that. So the, the teaching supported my, my writing. It didn't uh, take away from it. And I was lucky to be at the University of Chicago in those years. So I had a, a lot of lucky breaks. Um, and I wouldn't have changed much, except I would have I would have learned, I would have gone on with Tamil and maybe Malayalam and you know, other things like that. Telugu, Malayalam. Uh, there must be many, uh, many an epiphany insight sort of about the nature or functioning of Puranas. I don't know, that may be too vast a question if you begin to, to touch on, but I wonder, would you agree that um, the Puranas really affords uh, a window into really the life of tradition, really the tissues of Indic civilization in some way. Would you agree with that? Or what, what's your take on their, their role? I, I, think it's, I think it's true. I think they're very important. Um, they're a funny genre. Um, on the one hand, because they're in Sanskrit, they're fairly upper caste. So not everyone, no villagers didn't know Sanskrit. But they bring into the world of Sanskrit the lower classes because, you know, any man who knew Sanskrit also knew another language. You had to have another language to talk to your wife, to your cook, to your uh, gardener and so forth, and to your nanny when you were little, to your nurse. So what came into Sanskrit in, in the Puranas was the vernacular literature that the Brahmin mostly authors of the Puranas heard from lower class women. So a lot of women's stories, a lot of lower class stories get into the Puranas in that way. And that's their richness. Um, peculiar. That's why the, the Sanskrit in some Puranas, as you know, is really terrible Sanskrit. Um, but some of the great religious literature is like that. Um, Koine Greek the Greek in which the New Testament is uh, written is, is terrible Greek. Um, my, my Greek teacher at Harvard said of, of Paul, who wrote a great deal of the New Testament, if I had Paul in Greek class, I'd flunk him. So that's, and that's where the life of Christianity comes from. It comes from those early Koine Greek texts. So I think the Puranas are wonderful because they let in like a breath of fresh air to this Brahmin Vedic world, a world which is still Sanskrit, which is still ultimately edited and constrained by um, a fairly upper-class male um, sect of composers, but brings in insanely funny and often dirty and irreligious and original and violent, um, all sorts of things that come from what later on we discovered was Indian folklore when people finally went up in the Punjab and 
collected Punjabi stories and Bengal and so forth. That was the 17th, 18th centuries, really quite late. Um, the collection of folklore, um, sort of British women in sensible shoes running around India collecting stories and so forth. Um, so that's where the life of the people gets into Sanskrit literature. And I think that's why the Puranas are so interesting um, and why I always like them so much. Fantastic. Uh, there was one other point that um, uh, that was on the roster for today to touch on, and that was um, in, in the email exchange, it was pertaining to this issue of cultural appropriation that's oh, very yes. much... And so that's something that you wanted to say a bit about. So maybe you can start that conversation. Yes, indeed. Um, I've led a charmed life. I was lucky in everything. Um, As I said, lucky to be in Chicago and so forth. I'm lucky that I retired in 1970, in in 2018. Um, After I retired, the cult of cultural appropriation began to take hold in America um, in all sorts of ways in terms of women and men as part of the Me Too and in black and white in terms of the Black Lives Matter and in terms of um, India, uh, partly from the Hindu American Foundation and its Hindu Twa roots supported by Modi's government in India. But part of this larger issue, which includes Um, men not being able to read women's stories and white people not being able to talk about black people's stories and so forth. So the idea is that when you study the art and literature of another culture, you are stealing it in the same way that Lord Elgin stole the marbles from Greece and had them in the British Museum instead of leaving them in Athens where the Turks would have bombed them to hell, which is another story anyway. And um, I just started hearing horror stories about a woman who was invited, an American woman who was invited to sing bhajans at Brown University in Rhode Island. And not the Indian students, but the black students objected that it was cultural appropriation. This woman was making money by stealing Indian stories and she was not allowed to speak or to sing as the case may be. And the president of Brown apologized for having invited her in the first place. And I thought to myself, sister, it's a good thing you are out of it. You, it's a good thing you retired. So there are people who resent the fact that I make money from books that I write about India. Whereas I always, always thought of myself as a cultural ambassador, that there were people who didn't like Hindus, who thought they were sort of silly people and had too many gods and all that. British prejudice that there always was. And I showed the world that they were brilliant people that told wonderful stories and had insights into the meaning of life that were better than anyone had ever had before. I felt myself an ambassador for Hinduism and to be regarded as a thief of it was very shocking to me. And I worry about my students and I worry about education where you're not supposed to cross all these boundaries. Um, There are things you, books you can't read because they have words in them. You can't read Huck Finn, you can't read anything and so forth. So the fact that so much of the interaction, the intersection, the um, interceding of cultures, which is the essence of education, 
is being challenged by the idea of cultural appropriation. It no longer hurts me. As I say, I'm out of it. I worry about my students and I worry about the process of education and in the humanities in general uh, by this idea that you are harming another culture by studying it. It seems to me so wicked, so stupid, and so destructive that um, I'm, I don't know what I can do about it. I'm kind of out of it. I'm, I'm, I'm off the, the playing field at the moment, but I very much worry about my students and they're being very cautious in the selection of topics and all sorts of things. I do have some students who are Indian um, and presumably they'll be free of this stigma, but I have students who are not Indian and I, I wonder what's gonna become of them. Some very good students who are not Indian. It's so a, that's, that's a real threat, I think, to the... Yeah, it's, a, it's a really vexing topic, I think. Um, would you like me to share my experiences with that? I would love to. Yeah. So my primary experience is really, I'm in this very uh, strange, you know, apurva um, uh, um, um, position in that essentially I function as an independent scholar where I, I research it. You know, I, I have a teaching affiliation with the OCHS, and teach online at a number of uh, uh, schools, either continuing studies or sometimes credit courses, the odd sessional here or there. So from, from that perspective, it doesn't, these issues similar to you, they don't bind me in the same way as if I was part of a department. At the same time, um, my primary sustenance these days is from a, an online school that I've set up just earlier this year. I've been teaching online for about five years or so, but there's an online school called, it's called the School of Indian Wisdom. It integrates scholarship with storytelling, with you know traditional uh, teaching, sort of uh, emic teachings, and it's so fascinating. So many, many students who come, um, typically from the yoga world, uh, typically in white bodies, they're so very sheepish about this, and I feel like the Pope some days because I have to absolve them. <laughs> Well, it's interesting because we study these topics. I've got students of Indic descent. I've got students of European descent, students throughout America. And one of the things I, I mean, I'll just share my particular perspective. Obviously I don't have the answer. Everyone has to figure it out for themselves. But I, the first thing I said is, look, you know, perhaps folks may have an argument when it comes to how you're presenting yourself as a representative of a tradition or perhaps with sales, depending. I mean, I don't mean in terms of if you're, if you're, your dharma is a production of knowledge in your case, I mean, in terms of someone wanting to make a quick buck by presenting themselves as an authentic teacher, perhaps surely there are issues. Having said that, we're, the global buffet has an international, the global village has an international buffet. Like everyone's going to eat samosas and sushi. And, and that's delightful. If you're passing yourself off as a traditional <laughs> Japanese sushi master, that's a different story. And so I'm sort of very, uh, everyone should benefit from whatever they'd like. And I was actually shocked at the extent to which some of these folks really needed permission yeah. To, to, to dive into a course they're, they're already taking. And I'm like, and the other issue that comes up is how do we now gauge insider from outsider? Or, or is it worth doing it? Well, how, and, and, and what is the future of the globe? 
What is the future of the globe? How do you, what do you do with somebody with uh, Indic DNA who was born and raised in the West, speaks only in English vernacular? What do you do with somebody born to children of devout Hare Krishnas in a, in, in a Western body who's been doing more Archie and Puja than the, the person of, like, what, what do we do with that? Yeah. And so that's kind of where I <laughs> sort of go with that. Oh, you have to say that these, these categories are no longer meaningless. They're no longer sustainable. Um, there's just knowledge. You can get it right, you can get it wrong. When you do a translation, it either is or is not an accurate translation. When you interpret a story, then everyone will do it differently. And you don't have to say, this is what the story means. You say, you know, I got this from the story. One has to be humble aside from the political issues. Just as a scholar, you have to be humble. You have to say, I've done my best, but someone else will do it better. Someone else will get it. Um, even now, and I'm working on this, this, this new translation, we haven't talked about the new project, we'll do that some other time. Um, every once in a while, I get to a really messed up sense, Sanskrit shloka. And at that point, I think I have to ask Gary Tubb. Gary Tubb is my colleague at University of Chicago, who's the greatest living Sanskritist I know. And he knows more Sanskrit than I do. And at that point, I say, I'll save this for Gary. I do my best. So you do your best. That, you know, you can't do any more than you can do. And you don't say, I have gotten this perfect. This is the last word. You say, this is what I think. What do you think? Um, and it's interesting. I used to co-teach co with A.K. Ramanujan, the wonderful. And he'd say what he said it thought. And I say what I thought. And he, was, he knew more about some stuff. And I knew more about other stuff. If you take, for instance... I don't know, the whole idea of Buddhism, you want to have a Buddhist who teaches Buddhism. But if you have a real Buddhist, he's a particular kind of a Buddhist. He's a Sri Lankan Buddhist, or he's a so-and-so. He's likely only to know one kind of Buddhism. He knows it real well. Whereas a scholar of Buddhism might also know Chinese Buddhism, which he doesn't know, and would know more about Buddhism in some ways than a Buddhist would know. It's, it's, it's a, not a contest. It's a joint team effort. The person who's not from the native tradition indeed misses many things that a native knows, but she also knows some things that a native doesn't know. It's a team effort. It's not a contest. And there's an infinite supply of it. It's not like you're not allowed to read the Puranas because a white woman translated them. You know, their promise are still there. I didn't do anything to them at all. They're intact. They're there. They exist. I, I gave you my interpretation. The idea that you've harmed it, the way that Lord Elgin did in some way harm Greece by removing the Elgin marbles is you can't remove the piranhas from India. They're, they're there. It's simply not a valid analogy. And uh, I hope it's a fad that passes along with swallowing goldfish that they did in the 1920s <laughs> i think <laughs> i um <laughs> I, I think there will always be people on all sides of the political spectrum who are intent on yoga you know like this is just a, it's just a part of the human experience but it often strikes me as whether or not folks have a point or it's valid a lot of times activism just seems um geared towards division yeah. right and so people err all the time you know you have you know, whatever your family members colleagues whatever there are adults everywhere <laughs> you know 
and the question is, how do you, where's the common ground? How do you reach somebody? And so I think that's a, just a difference in attitude in terms of you can point something out, but still your goal is to try to stand with someone as opposed to, to pointing. Them. And to yes. help them, to give them what they lack and they give you what you lack. It's a cooperative venture. Um, that's what the world of scholarship is all about. And um, I'm hoping they'll come to their senses sooner or later, that this is a little uh, a phase they're going through. Um, and that we'll look back on it one day and say, do you remember a cultural appropriation? Oh, God, yes. Remember that? You remember Trump? Oh, God, yes. Remember that? Uh, so I'm hoping that that's what we will say someday. Probably I will not be around to see it, but I hope that it'll happen. All things are possible. Um, well, is there anything else that you wanted to touch on before you close? No, I think this was a really, I had such fun. You asked such good questions. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That's delightful to hear. So, um, Swaha, the Purnahuti has been offered. <laughs> Thank you very much for appearing on the podcast. Thank you, Raj. It was a great pleasure. Goodbye. Take care. For those of you listening, we have been speaking with Dr. Wendy Doniger, who is Emerita Professor uh, at the University of Chicago. Um, until next time, stay safe, stay sane, and keep contemplating the power of piranhas, among other things.